Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, which is located in your Bibles on page 811. Please stand if you're able as we read from the New Testament. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or, What shall we drink? Or, What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Please be seated. Thanks to Drew for his excellent reading. As we uh, come to the sermon this morning, let's uh, bear in mind in prayer those things that we've been praying for this week. I want to continue to pray for Judy Joyce in the loss of her brother. She asks us to pray for her sister-in-law and for her niece. We want to pray for Patsy Ledford and for Joel as they spend time with her brother in ICU in Charlottesville after a heart attack. And for Debbie Johnson in ICU, many of you have been praying for her in hospital in Buffalo uh, with double, double pneumonia. So do pray for all of those things uh, in the hope of God who promises to heal us if we will but ask him. So we thank God for these things and for the safe return of our mission teams from Scotland and from JARS. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you hear us, that you know us, that you know our needs. And what you ask of us is that we should present them to you. No matter how simple or ordinary or perhaps unworthy they may appear, Lord, we know that we come to a Father who loves us and loves to answer our prayers in Jesus' name. And Father, we pray this morning, knowing that you've given us your holy scriptures for our learning. May we so hear them, read, learn, and take them to heart, that being strengthened and comforted by your holy word, we may cling to that hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit our God, now and forever. Amen. I've long had a fascination with uh, church signs and with their creativity. From the rural church sign to the galactic church sign to the unhelpfully ambiguous church sign. This is one of my favorites. I have to read it both ways. <laughs> to the unintentionally threatening church sign. 
<laughs> but whatever the signs, the fact is that we worry. It's interesting, people in every socioeconomic status worry. We, we are prone to worry. And the question is, why do we worry? And I worry because we really, we worry because we've been given two gifts. First of all, a gift for anticipating the future. And second, a gift for preparing for unforeseen trouble. And we use those gifts where they should not be used. We worry because it feels as if we are contributing towards the future, something over which we have absolutely no control. If you think about it, we're like hamsters on the hamster wheel of life. It will do us no good to get up again into the wheel of worry, but at least we feel like we're doing something. And that's really what worry is. When we feel compelled to do in the face of something, that we can do nothing about. We worry. So as we come to this passage, we're going to face a few facts about it this morning. All of this discussion about worry, you'll notice, follows naturally from a discussion about money, which we looked at last week in the first part of this. Because if you haven't got money to be your safety net, you're going to worry. And secondly, because the big answer to worry is really the big message of the Sermon on the Mount. And that is that if you have a Father in heaven that you can trust, a Father who loves you, a Father who knows your needs. And so Jesus says, as he does in the Lord's Prayer, trust your Father. That's, that's the basic message here. And that's the message we need to listen to. What reasons then does Jesus present that we have to trust him? Well, three reasons and one thing that the Lord gives us, you'll notice, in the place of worrying. So please turn to our passage as Drew has read it to us from Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 34. Three reasons you have to trust your Heavenly Father. First, trust your Father because you matter more to Him than birds. Every week we talk about the passage among the staff and uh, Michael made the comment, which is really crucial, that Jesus' teaching here on worry begins deliberately with this word, therefore. It's connected with what Jesus has just said about money. So last week, in the verses before this, we were talking about money, and Jesus was warning us not to lay up treasures on earth, because for one thing, those treasures don't last. They're a bad investment. And for another, the cost to us of putting our trust on them is slavery, when freedom is being offered to us, freedom from the slavery of being uh, falsely trusting in what money can give us or any other false human security. It is only our Father in heaven that can give us what we need. And so therefore Jesus is saying, don't worry, don't worry. When I was uh, 14, I remember distinctly being taken to our 100-foot climbing wall with the Boy Scouts and being taught how to rappel down a wall. It's the most naturally terrifying thing, if you've ever done this, that you will ever be made to do. Just walk backwards towards the edge of the wall, we were calmly told by our instructor, and when you feel your feet reach the edge, lower yourself uh, straight outwards until you're at right angles with the wall. You're perfectly safe. I've got you with this big rope. 
to which we were all thinking, yes, you've got us, but who's got you? And it's like that here. It's as if Jesus is saying, you've had money as your security. That's what you've grown up with. It's what your parents have told you. It's what every facet of your life has persuaded you is the big security for you. And now he says, I'm going to ask you to go to the edge, but this time without the security of trusting in the love of money. I'm going to oblige you to trust me as I hold on to you. And so you'll notice here, equally importantly, Jesus continues then with his explanation. This word life is not life more than food and the body more than clothing because this is what idolatry does, including the love of money. It alters our perception of reality. It makes us neglect what is most important. It forces us to live in a kind of tiny, self-enclosed, protective world of minor experience. I thought to myself, if I hadn't trusted that scoutmaster, his experience, his confidence, his ability, his hope for me, I would have been denied a richer experience of life. I would have missed one of the great adventures physically that someone can go through in their body, even if it seemed to me at that point that I was about to lose my life. Look at the birds, Jesus says. As you read this, Jesus is point here is not that you should just sit back and do nothing like the birds do, because actually birds don't do that. We see them busy at their work, as we're, we're expected to be busy at our work too. But in their case and ours, God feeds them, and he feeds us, interestingly, indirectly. So he makes provision for the birds to be fed as they go about their work of finding food. And he, he makes provision for us in the same way to feed ourselves from what he's provided. And the birds notice, despite their work and need, seem quite content. When was the last time you saw an anxious blue jay or a concerned cardinal with a frown on its face? No, they are quite content. They sing with other birds, they get together with other birds, I think socially. They chase ladybirds, they build their nests, they rear their young, they're not worrying creatures. What they don't do is to set up complex agricultural systems, establishing a calendar for sowing, harvesting, and storing their food, as Jesus says here. Squirrels may do that, but they are creatures of no faith and no honor, <laughs> who don't get any kind of mention in the Bible. <laughs> The birds do this, the implication is, because they implicitly trust their creator. And of course, this isn't really about birds, is it? This is about you and me. And this is Jesus telling you, God loves birds, but don't you know that he loves you far more? You are so much more valuable to him than even birds. Second, trust your father because you are more beautiful to him than flowers. Verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Commentators uh, tell us that this is a bit of an odd phrase in the original language to translate. It's odd because it can mean one of two things. It can either mean making yourself taller by a cubit, which is about 18 inches, or making your life longer by a single hour. Both are possible translations. 
So it's likely that the correct translation here is metaphorical, something like, who thinks that by worrying they can add even 18 inches to their span of life? And we now know, of course, that worrying doesn't add to your life, it actually shortens it. The latest studies say that people who chronically are given to worry can take as much as 10 years off their lives. So if it's a longer life or a healthier body you want, worrying, Jesus says, is not the way to go. And why are you anxious, he asks, about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. The flowers here are described as lilies of the field, which describes uh, the saying in Isaiah 35, the desert will rejoice and blossom like a lily. I'm very envious of uh, our friends who've just gotten back from Israel because they've seen some of this. But this is, this is one of the great sights, apparently, of Israel in the, after the winter rains, that people would go and see where there has been desert and wilderness and only rocks, now a vast scale of color, red anemones and poppies and orange flowers, the, the flowering of the desert. So the desert is rejoicing with flowers, Isaiah says, and he gives a reason because it's going to see the glory of the Lord. That's the anticipation for it, that the beauty in the wilderness is an anticipation of the beauty of Messiah, a remarkable beauty given where we have expected none. And so Jesus is saying to those who are listening, consider the flowers. They're responding with beauty that's been given to them to their creator who is beautiful. And he's reminding us flowers don't work at that. They don't work at making and, and putting together their petals for the day. They don't choose the uh, correct colors or, or spend time dyeing the colors to just get them right before they put on their petals. They don't have to spend hours stitching together themselves at the spinning wheel. And yet as simple as they are, not even Solomon, in all of his glory, one of Israel's greatest kings, was arrayed like one of these. Verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And Jesus here is quoting from Psalm 103. This is the glory of the Lord, his beauty which is revealed in Messiah, the majesty of our God. Again, if you think about this, even for a moment, theologically, it's an astonishing idea that someone who has no body, someone who has no material needs, but has made a material creation that he loves, and material creatures that he loves, has a care for their material needs as finite as they are. And so it is for the basic needs of even the least human being who fears him, that we're told here that God is concerned for you. It matters to him that you not worry about your basic needs. And of course, what is true of his provision for clothing is also true of shelter and mortgages and retirement and every other kind of covering we need, particularly in a time of shrinking stock markets. And the lesson is what we need, which is his beauty to us, is his gift to us, something that he has provided which we cannot work for. That's what the flowers remind us next time you see one. 
And thirdly, trust your father because you are family to him and others are not, verses 31 to 32. Some of you are old enough as I am to remember the comedian Bob Newhart. He had this um, famous skit, which is probably his most famous, where he plays a uh, therapist who has a counsellee who's coming in to see him. And she explains as she sits down in his chair that what has ruined his, her life has been her preoccupation with the fear of being buried alive. She suffers from an immense fear of claustrophobia and it's ruined her life. And he says to her after listening to her, I'm going to say two words to you. I want you to listen carefully and then take them out of the office with you when you leave. Are you ready? Yes, she says. And he replies, stop it. <laughs> stop it. But I can't just stop it, she says. To which he reflects and then says, stop it. Now, notice Jesus doesn't use the same approach in counseling here. His is a prohibition, don't worry, but it's a prohibition made by someone who is drawing you towards him, not pushing you away. It's like a father or a mother clutching a child to themselves, a child who's anxious, or perhaps friends embracing each other in a time of crisis. Jesus uses these how much more arguments here, which are inherently saying it's better here with me than out there with them. And he's making the contrast, isn't he, with the Gentiles, the pagans, who in biblical terms don't trust the Lord. They're seeking after all of these things. And if you know anything about pagan and classical religion, this is what they were designed to do. The, the gods of Egypt and Greece and Rome were all designed to be simply a covering, a, a system of religion which would reassure people that their daily needs were being met and so they would sacrifice to them. But they were, by definition, people who did not trust in a father's care. And Jesus is saying, you don't need to be like them. In the same way, I think, that we're to look at our own culture and say we don't need to listen to those, comforts, those constant advertisements, really in the promise that they're making to us. Because they don't mean to care for us. And we shouldn't put our trust in them. We should trust in the one who means to look after us and will if we will trust him. So when you're worried, when you're tempted to worry about the bills or the kids or the car repair or your relationships or your illness or your lifespan, whatever it is, Jesus is saying, resist the pagan path. Resist this temptation to worry as the solution because it doesn't achieve anything. And then do whatever you can to look out for number one. That's not the way you were designed. That's the way of the world. Rather, trust me. Now, you, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time at all, you would know this doesn't come automatically or quickly. This is something we have to train ourselves to do. This is something that takes time. You have to grab yourself, I think, by the shirt collar and say, stop worrying. Stop it. Christians need to learn how to do this. I've been reading the diaries of Hudson Taylor. He was the founder of the China Inland Mission. And it took time, he said, for him to learn how to stop worrying and to rest in God's love. This is what he writes in his diary for May 1888. He says, I have not much anxiety about our income. The fact is he didn't have much money at that point. 
He said, I do not believe that our heavenly father will ever forget his children. I am a very poor father, but it's not my habit to forget my children. God is a very, very good father. It is not his habit to forget his children. And so Jesus is saying here, remember who you belong to. When you're tempted to worry, remember who you belong to. Take a pause for a moment and say, who am I? Who do I belong to? And who is he to me? And then when you're tempted to worry, remember that he knows what you need. Jesus says here quite explicitly, he knows that you need all these things. It's interesting that Jesus is deliberately broad and all-encompassing in what he says because he knows the way that we think. He knows that we think, yeah, but God's not thinking about this that I'm thinking about right now. No, God knows that you need all these things. He knows the situation you're in. He knows what provision he has already made for you. So don't worry. Only trust him. And finally, trust your father because this is his plan for you by common sense and by a sense of the gospel. Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. I think it's telling again that this is the way that Jesus deals with worry. It's quite reasonable. He doesn't shout us down. He doesn't tell us just to stop it, right? It's a commonsensical approach. If you are worrying today about what will happen tomorrow, and then you get to tomorrow and it doesn't happen, you have, in fact, worried once for nothing. And if you're worrying today about what will happen tomorrow and it does happen, you have worried twice instead of once. In either case, your worrying has doubled your trouble. It's the wrong focus and the wrong activity, so quit worrying. It's, it's a waste of time. All you are doing is probably taking hours off your life. Instead, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? Which is what he has planned for this day. The things that he has to teach you, the things that he has in store for you. And all of these things, all the things that you think you need and that you know you need and you're sure you need will be added to you. He will add them to you. So the battle, we know this, against worry isn't a one-and-done proposition. It's a daily education in the most ordinary of activities. And you can see the application of it throughout the Gospels. Here's uh, one of my favorite moments. It's Martha, the, the sister of Lazarus, with Jesus, who was a great family friend in Luke chapter 10. She's stressed out. Mary doesn't seem to be caring about what she's having to go through and helping out and being hospitable. And Jesus takes Martha aside and said, you're worried, you're upset about many things, but only one thing is necessary. All this other stuff you have to do, it will come and go, but you need just one thing. Martha, Martha, I am that one thing. Less well known than Hudson Taylor is a far less successful missionary who has barely made it into the annals of missionary work. He was a man called Alan Gardner. In 1851, after almost 20 years of frustration, 
Six failed attempts to get to the mission field. Uh, he was finally on his way to what looked like an open door in South America. But on the way there, with his companions having left their families back at home, he was shipwrecked at the very end of the world in Tierra del Fuego, right at the bottom of what's well, now Chile or Argentina. And he was shipwrecked on a beach, and nobody ever came to rescue them. And Alan Gardner died on that remote beach, his life one of frustration and abject failure to any outside observer. But it's striking. When they discovered his body, they found his journal next to him, and presumably the last thing that he had written from Psalm 34, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. And underneath it, the last thing he ever wrote, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. No fear, no bitterness, no continuing anxiety, no regret. Why? Because at the end of his life, a life of loss and frustration, all that had been taken from him had been taken from him except his one thing. If all the world forgot Alan Gardner, he mattered to Jesus. And if he sought any beauty in his life, he found it at the end of his life by gazing on the beauty of Christ and his extraordinary blossoming glory to him at the mercy of the cross. And as far as he was from everyone to whom he mattered, this was his safety, that the Father had made him part of his family. Don't you see, Jesus is saying, that's true for you too. You can be marooned on a desert island, or you could lose everything, or you could leave a, live a life which everyone around you will consider, has considered an abject failure. But you are absolutely safe. Because nevertheless, you have placed your trust in him and he has set his love on you. So don't worry. Let's pray. Father, if there was a local support group for anxiety, I imagine we would all be in it and all be standing here this morning saying that we are anxious people, people given to worry about the future given to worry about things that we cannot control, and given to worry, really, because we doubt your goodness and we doubt your interest in looking after us in the things that we really need. And, Father, we confess that to you. I confess that to you because it's unbelief. You have taught us that you will catch us. You have taught us that you will provide for us. You have taught us and demonstrated to us in Jesus that you love us and that you want us to experience that love by trusting you. So, Lord, would you help us, as frail as we are, to learn that lesson today and this week? In Christ's name, amen.